How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Scripture emphasizes that as believers, we are either walking by the Spirit or we are walking according to the flesh. There's no room for some in-between thing where you have one foot on one side and the one foot on the other side. It's one or the other. And the means of recovery in Scripture from sin is always cleansing. First John one nine says that if we confess our sin, which means to which means to admit or acknowledge our sin, then we are instantly cleansed of the sins we name and forgiven of all other sins. We're forgiven of those sins and cleansed of all unrighteousness. And so that wipes the slate clean, and we move from walking in darkness to walking in the light. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you are spiritually prepared to walk by the Spirit and walk in the light of God's Word tonight as we study it, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's a great joy that we have that we know with certainty that we are in your family because of faith in Jesus Christ, that it is by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone that we have eternal salvation, and that you have bequeathed to us an infinite number of blessings that we have on reserve for us in heaven a a host of uh, rewards, possessions that are ours potentially dependent upon our obedience, our walk by the Spirit while we're here in this life. Father, we're thankful that we have your word to guide, direct us. Father, we continue to pray for this nation. There are enemies, external enemies, as well as internal enemies that seek to destroy this nation. We stand in the gap with Israel historically. We have stood for the truth of your word historically, and yet that both of those uh, situations have eroded gradually through the last century, and they are in serious threat of of being destroyed today. And, Father, we need believers to stand in the gap through prayer, to stand in the gap through whatever action they can take, and to make their voice heard and not just to go along to get along. And, Father, we need to have courage and strength, and we need to focus on your word because a day may come when we are an oppressed and persecuted minority, and the only thing we will have at that time to strengthen us is the doctrine in our soul that we take in today. And once the time comes uh, when we need it, it's too late to try to get it. We need to get it now. So, Father, we pray that you would strengthen us from your word as we study this evening. In Christ's name, amen. All right, we're continuing our study in 1 Peter and chapter 1, and today we're probably just going to start looking at verses 3 and 4, but I want to do a bit of an overview as well for this first section, which goes down through verse uh, verse 12. 
depending on how uh, some things are organized and structured. And so we'll do a bit of an overview of this first section from verse 3 to verse 12, wrap up a couple of things in the uh, salutation at the end of verse 2 as we go, get ready to go into this, this, next, major, uh, this next major section. Like uh, most of you, a couple of weeks ago we had Resurrection Day, and I don't know how many of y'all went out to dinner somewhere afterward, but we went out for a Easter brunch at one of the local hotels, and it's usually my procedure when I go to a place like that, or even when I sit down at a restaurant and take a look at the menu, if I'm going to have dessert, I want to make sure I understand if I'm going to have dessert and what it's going to be, because you don't want to make the mistake of eating so much during your meal that there's no room for that dessert afterwards, right? You have to begin with the end in mind, and that's just a general principle in life that you always, whenever you start a job, a task, a responsibility, you need to clearly define what the end game is. In the military, they have a, a ten basic principles uh, 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 for, for the military for guiding any operation, and the first one is objective. You have to define your objective. You have to know where you're headed so that when you get there, you know you've arrived. So you have to begin with the end in mind, and that's what Peter does in this section. He focuses on the end game of the Christian life and sets that stage, and and everything that comes after this in the epistle uh, relates to that end game, which is our rewards or our inheritance in heaven, and that that is the end game, as we're going to see in our study. So he introduces that, as we see in the salutation, identifying himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, and then he says, gives his his uh, uh, the, the destination, the recipients, to those who are resident aliens in the diaspora, in the diaspora, these are the Jews that have been scattered. He's writing to Jewish background believers, to Messianic Jews in the first century, and he is addressing particular issues that they have. So even though he is addressing them as Jewish believers in the church age with their particular background, they are still part of the church and so there is an application of what he is saying to all believers, but we must understand that that in terms of the original situation and circumstance, he's addressing uh, Jewish background believers. So there's a certain overtone to some things that he is saying that has a particular resonance with them because they are uh, heirs of Abraham in more ways than you and I are. They are heirs of Abraham as heirs of the Abrahamic covenant, whereas we are just heir, spiritual heirs of Abraham uh, because of our faith in the promise of God, specifically that Jesus Christ is the one who died on the cross for our sins. So these terms, paradidimos, pilgrims or resident aliens, as I like to translate it, of the diaspora in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, uh, Asia, and Bithynia. And we'll look at that map again in just a minute, that they're the choice ones, choice ones, uh, emphasizing the quality of their spiritual uh, existence because of their position in Christ, their possession of imputed righteousness, their choice, three things qualify that. The foreknowledge of God, which means 
prescience, every time it's used, it has that idea of knowing something ahead of time. It doesn't change its meaning just because God is the subject of the verb. This is a, uh, a, a logical flaw that occurs in a lot of Calvinistic theology. Uh, second, it's by means of sanctification by the Holy Spirit. That's positional sanctification. We're choice by that. There's a uh, when we are identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection, that fits and works together with uh, that imputation of Christ's righteousness. So these are distinct things that happen at the instant of salvation. They are coterminous. That means they all happen at the same time. They happen simultaneously. And then third, it is for the purpose we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, set apart by the Holy Spirit for a purpose, and that purpose is to execute our spiritual life, to fulfill that spiritual life, to to work it out, to grow to spiritual maturity. And as I've said many, many times, when we were kids, we wanted our parents to treat us like adults because we knew that it was only in adulthood that you really got to experience all the great things in life. You didn't want to be treated like a kid anymore. When you got to be 8, 9, 10, 11 years of, old, years of age or something like that, you'd tell your parents, well, treat me like, like I'm older. Don't treat me like a kid anymore. But most Christians just want to be treated like a kid. They want to stay a baby, and they don't want to grow up and assume the responsibilities of spiritual maturity. But that's where real life begins in the spiritual life is when we hit spiritual maturity. And so we are saved for obedience, and that's not legalism. Obedience is walking by the Spirit. And, and in, in churches that emphasize the grace of God, as, as Peter says in, in, in 5.12, that, that we're to stand in the true grace of God, grace doesn't mean it's okay to disobey God. Grace means God's got a way to recover from disobedience, but it doesn't mean that it's okay to disobey God. And emphasizing obedience isn't legalism. And I've heard a lot of people say that over the years when somebody comes along and says, you need to pray, you need to do this, you need to do that, all of which are biblical commands. They say, well, that's that's just legalistic. No, it's not legalistic. It's legalistic if you're not doing it in the power of the Spirit, but if you're doing it by when you're walking by the Spirit, it is the, 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 those are the protocols of the spiritual life. So we are saved for the purpose of obedience, saved for good works, Paul says, in Ephesians 2.10, just after he gives that very clear statement of the nature of salvation. It, it is uh, by grace through faith that we are saved not of works, lest any man should boast. And he turns right around and says that we are saved for this purpose, that is, for good works. So we are saved to walk in those good works. So, And sometimes we fail. And as I pointed out last time, that is what the term sprinkling of the blood of Christ is related to. He, that sprinkling of the blood of Christ in the Old Testament, the sprinkling of the sacrifice, the sprinkling of the blood was a, was what occurred in ongoing cleansing. When you sinned and you had to come back to the uh, temple or the tabernacle and you were worshiping, then there had to be a sin offering or trespass offering, a burnt offering, and then the blood of the lamb or the goat or the bullock or the, uh, dove or whatever was sprinkled or splattered on the altar as a sign of cleansing. So this is just imagery for what we do all the time. 
in terms of confession of sin, 1 John 1, 9, and, and moving forward. So then Peter closes this with his, uh, with his greeting, grace to you and peace be multiplied. That's the King James, our new King James. I would translate it may. It's a expression of a wish or a desire on his part. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's expressing one of his themes in this, in this epistle is that they truly become grace-oriented. When he comes to the end of the epistle, he says this grace, this true grace in which we stand. And throughout this epistle, grace is mentioned ten times. We'll see the word mercy mentioned here in verse 3, mentioned one time. And there are other synonyms of grace that are emphasized several times in the course of this epistle. So this epistle is very much about grace. In fact, if you've got a Ryrie Study Bible, and if you look at the notes in the Ryrie Study Bible, Ryrie makes that the theme. I don't think that's the theme. I think the theme is what he expresses in this first opening paragraph. Very similar to James. Many of you have gone through the James series with me. It's very similar to James. You have an opening introduction in James, it goes from James 1, 2 down through about verse uh, 17 or 18. That's your introduction, and it is a mirror of the conclusion that comes in at the end in about first, uh, in about James 4, uh, 13 down through the end of chapter 5. So you have an opening introduction, then you have a conclusion, and then you have your main body in between. And the themes, the major themes, the major focus of, of what is said is in between your introduction and your conclusions like a sandwich. I got emailed this morning. I like hamburgers. I was emailed this morning a list of the 10, what was that, the 10 best burgers in Houston, okay? 10 best burgers. And one of them, and I saw this, I went there a couple of weeks ago, was it what used to be Bernie's Burger Bus, and now they've got their actual location over in Bel Air in the, in the uh, what used to be the old Triangle. And this has got to be the, one of the most decadent burgers I've ever seen. Most burgers, you have a, you have a bun that's your top bun and then your bottom bun. For the top bun, you get a, you have a grilled cheese sandwich. For the bottom bun, you have a grilled cheese sandwich. So that's four pieces of bread. The top two have cheese in the middle, and the bottom two have cheese in the middle. So that goes on top of about three inches of filling in that hamburger. It's got to be a walking heart attack. Well, that's kind of how an epistle is structured. You have your, your top bun and your bottom bun. That's your introduction and your conclusion and in between you have the meat uh, of the uh, of the epistle the main message that's there and uh, you have a lot of the ideas that are developed even though the words aren't used in between in this case they are but even though the words aren't necessarily used in between the ideas are there that's definitely true with with James James is all about how to endure testing how to persevere in times of testing and when you look at word, the use of the word hupomone for endurance in the introduction and in the conclusion, words like endurance and long-suffering, macrothemia, are used several times in the, those, uh, in the introduction and in the conclusion. And so that tells you what that 
epistle is all about, that it's unified. And I remember when I was studying James years ago as, as a young pastor, and I started reading through numerous commentaries, and back then we didn't have as many as we do today, and they weren't always very good, and they all looked at James as as the New Testament counterpart to Proverbs, that it was really disconnected. It was just a lot of wise sayings and that there was no internal unity. But that was completely, completely false. James has a unity. It's be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, and that's your outline of the book. So Peter is much the same way. Peter has a very clear expression of of the organization, the themes that are going to be laid out in this in this epistle. It's not clear in one verse as succinctly as James, but it's the same idea. So he he emphasized this. But this 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 salutation that we have here, grace to you and may may grace and peace be multiplied to you, is often glossed over in a lot of Bible studies. It's glossed over by a lot of Sunday school teachers. It's glossed over by a lot of seminary professors. And what you'll typically hear is that the standard greeting in in the classical world, in the Greek-speaking classical world, was uh, a karen, uh, meaning grace, grace to you. And the standard greeting in the in the Jewish community was shalom, which is peace. And so what they're doing is they're just taking the standard greeting of the Greeks and the standard greeting of the Jews and combining that in the and and, and it's not anything more than that. And I don't think you can say that about anything in Scripture. If every word down to the grammatical forms are breathed out by God, then we have to look at this as something significant. And I believe it is significant that only grace and peace come to us from God, and it can be multiplied in our lives if we walk by the Spirit, if we take in the Word of God and it uh, maximizes uh, our souls, then we can experience grace and peace at different levels. A, a baby believer can have a measure of, of, of grace orientation and happiness and peace and stability as, a, as an infant. But as he grows in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, then this is going to expand even more over the course of his spiritual growth and over the course of his spiritual life. And so grace and peace will be multiplied if, as a believer, we grow in, and we take in the milk of the word, First Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 2, that we are to desire the milk of the word that we may grow thereby. So it's very important. We looked at this, uh, the, the threefold structure there, modifying uh, the noun elect, which should be translated choice ones, according to prescience, by means of sanctification of the Spirit, and for the purpose of obedience and the sprinkling of the blood. Now, this was the map where we saw the probably the route of the messenger who carried the letter from church to church. And we have Pontus here in the north, which is just south of the the, uh, Black Sea. And then Galatia was a large province that extended from the north to the south. Then he would cross over to Cappadocia and then back to the west, crossing uh, through southern Galatia and going to uh, Asia, the Roman province of Asia, which was where uh, Paul established many churches when he was uh, in Ephesus and had his training school at um, 
uh, there in Ephesus that they sent out young pastors and missionaries all over Asia and established churches everywhere, like the seven churches that are mentioned at the beginning of Revelation, uh, uh, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Smyrna, Philadelphia, uh, Hierapolis, Laodicea, Colossae, all of these were started by Paul out of uh, the school of Tyrannus there in, in Ephesus. Now, I showed you this map last week. I used this one particularly because it has such bold colors identifying those those different Roman provinces, and that helps you to see that. A lot of the maps just do it like this, and it's rather hard or difficult to make out what those what the territories were. But this map is one that uh, I had in uh, Lagos Bible software, which is a map showing the the uh, diaspora where Jews had settled. And if you can read it, and you probably can't unless you're up here on the front row, I, I tried to enlarge it so if I made it any larger, it would just lose focus. But this was the... Uh, sort so of the, the the clarification indicate index for the map uh, that the the black dots these all these cities where their black dots had a Jewish population at the at the time of of the day of Pentecost. So that shows you how widely spread uh, the Jews were in the diaspora. They're just scattered all over in all of these major major cities. The Areas that are marked in red, okay, so in the area of, of Asia uh, or Turkey where we're looking right now, we have Asia's in red, uh, Phrygia, Phrygia's in red, Pontus is in red, Cappadocia's in red, Pamphylia's in red. If you go further to the area off to the, uh, off to the east, Mesopotamia, Media, Parthia, Elam are all in red because these are mentioned in Acts chapter 2 that there were Jews who'd come back to, uh, to, uh, Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And so those places in red are, uh, indicate locations from Jews who came back to Jerusalem and, are, and those locations are mentioned in, in Acts chapter 2. And then you come to North Africa, uh, Cyrenaica, Libya, Egypt, um, and then you have Arabia. So that just gives you an understanding of how widespread the Jewish population was. And so Peter is writing to this group of Jews in the diaspora that are in the area now known as Turkey. At the end of the epistle, he mentions, um, he mentions Babylon, which is located just about here in, uh, in what is now Iraq, the formal, the country formerly known as Iraq, till things settle out, we don't know exactly what it's going to be in the, in the future. And things are really wild over there right now. You need to, a lot of people don't like, some people don't like politics. I know most of y'all kind of like politics. A lot of people don't. And they're just so busy with their lives, which is great and wonderful. But we're living in a very interesting time right now more interesting than anything that, that in the last, I don't know how many years, uh, centuries. And we have uh, a, probably the breakout of a 30, some have said 30-year, some have said 100-year war between the Shiites and the Sunni. And they're engaged in a, a nuclear arms race. Immediately after the United States announced this screwball uh, framework for a peace agreement with Iran. That very night, from what I have heard, the Saudis made a deal to get nuclear 
some nuclear missiles, smaller missiles, uh, some smaller uh, nu- nuclear missiles from Pakistan. It started. People don't understand. this bill. These bills that are before Congress right now are so critical, and this issue is so critical is because if we are weak, then in that vacuum there's going to be a huge... Uh, huge power play between all kinds of different bad actors on the international scene. And so this, the weaker we are, the more we're perceived. And all the Arab countries all perceive us to be very weak, and if we're not going to stand with them, then they have to protect themselves. And the only way to protect themselves against a nuclear Iran is to go nuclear themselves. So aren't you excited about the fact that all of these crazy nut jobs who are running dictatorships over in the Middle East are going to be involved in a nuclear arms race. It's a great time to be alive. We get to trust God in ways that that our parents never had to deal with. They had just a little something going on in World War II, but I think this is really going to be a big show. And so this is going to be very, very, very interesting. But anyway, back to Babylon in the ancient world. That was the largest Jewish community at the time. And, of course, Peter was the apostle to the Jews. And so he had had a ministry there, and he had been involved in, in uh, Babylon. He also had uh, ministry here in, the, in this particular area. Now, the other thing that I talked about, and this is important to understand, is backdrop to where we're headed in this first part of First Peter 1, is to understand the three stages of salvation. Some people have called them the three tenses of salvation. I think Earl Rodmacher used that phrase, past, present, and future. Others call it the three phases of salvation. That, that the word salvation is used three different ways in Scripture, and we have to understand that phase one or stage one is justification. We believe in Jesus Christ in one instant of time, at that instant of time, we are uh, justified. We receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness, and God declares us just. It just takes a, a second. And on Sunday morning, I talked about what faith is. Faith is the assent to the truth of what the Bible says. It says, that's true. When you say that's true, you've believed it. And I wonder how many people who for just a, a, a nanosecond when they heard the gospel thought, that makes sense, but no, I just can't believe that. And I'm wondering if in that nanosecond that they said, that's true, they believed it was true, and then they said, you know, I'm going to catch all kinds of grief from my parents and my friends, and I, I just can't become a Christian right now. And maybe in that nanosecond where they said, that's true. They secured it. And, that, and they're going to be surprised when they end up in heaven that they trusted in Christ for that nanosecond. So, But if we believe it just takes a moment in time, then it just takes a moment in time. So that is justification. And we call that also that's related to positional sanctification. What I talked about last time, we're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and we are placed in Christ by the baptism by the Holy Spirit. And at that same time, we are freed from the eternal penalty of sin. But we still have that nasty sin nature within us. So phase two starts after that. After we're born, we have to grow. A lot of Christians are still born. They're born, they're alive, and they never get fed. 
They never learned the word. You can't obey. One of the big problems in lordship salvation is they say if you're truly saved, if you're truly saved, you're going to have works that are consistent with your salvation. You're going to, you'll know, uh, you'll know you're saved by your fruits. Trouble is, it takes a long time. Biblically, people today just have lost sight of agriculture. It takes a long time for a tree to bear fruit. It takes a, an oak tree about 70 years before it produces acorns. And I know a lot of Christians that are oak trees. That's not a compliment. It's taken them 70 years before they see any kind of, of fruit in their life. Others are more like tomato plants. It takes about 90 days, and they're out there rocking and popping. But it takes time, and growth has to take place before fruit is born. And we get a lot of folks confuse growth with fruit. And they say, well, so-and-so led somebody to the Lord. Well, that's not fruit. That's part of your spiritual responsibility as you're growing in the Lord. Don't confuse those things. So you have to be fed. That's why Paul... Uh, why Peter says in 2 Peter 2.2, 2, desire the milk of the word that you can grow thereby. You grow by taking in the word of God. If you haven't taken in any more of the word of God than believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, then you're not going to grow. You're just going to be a little baby in diapers. And if you're not fed pretty soon, you're just going to become emaciated and starved to death. And there won't be any growth, and there won't be any fruit. And unfortunately, that's true for a lot of Christians. They never go anywhere. Other, they get born. And that's very similar to what Jesus says, the way the parable of the soils is expressed in Luke. Because you have the second type of soil in which the seed falls on rocky ground, and it is germinated in sprouts, that's new life, and then it's choked out. So there's no growth beyond just that initial germination, but that shows that it that there is new life there. So all that's necessary is to trust in Christ and you're regenerated, which is what we'll see here. So phase two, we talk about it as the spiritual life. This is experiential sanctification in theological terms. And at justification, we're freed from the penalty of sin. In the spiritual life, we're freed from the power of sin. Romans chapter 6, we're learning to walk by the Spirit and not under the power of the sin nature. Nobody up to the day of Pentecost was ever freed from the power of sin. And then in ultimate sanctification, we're glorified, we're absent from the body, face to face with the Lord, no more sin nature, and we're freed from the presence of sin. Now, we have to keep those three things in our minds especially as we go through uh, this first chapter uh, of First Peter, because one of Peter's favorite words to use in verses 3 through 12 is salvation. Salvation. And guess what? He's not using the term salvation in this first chapter as a, as a means of talking about justification. He's primarily talking about either the whole package with an emphasis on glorification, or he's talking specifically about glorification. So if you're reading justification into the word salvation, then you're going to have a problem. And this is always a problem for uh, uh, American evangelicals because we're taught over and over and over again that, that salvation always means getting into heaven. 
And yet a lot of times in Scripture the word sozo or salvation doesn't mean getting into heaven. It means working out our salvation, our our Christian life after salvation, or realizing our glorification. So let's just look at these, these this first section, and we're going to look at uh, an overview of verses 3 through 12. Now, some of you went through the Bible study methods class that I taught a year ago. And uh, this that's going to come into play here because I'm trying to implement a few of those principles in the way I'm teaching this to help you see how to apply some of these things. And when you start off in Bible study method, you come to a section of Scripture, usually a paragraph, and you study that paragraph to come to understand what that paragraph is all about, because sentences make up a paragraph. A paragraph is a collection of sentences that revolve around the same theme, making making one particular point. Each sentence expresses one major thought. Now, you can have, in some sentences, in a compound sentence, I just love grammar. Everybody glazes over a little bit, and they take a vacation. Some of you really need to go to the Bahamas, so this is your opportunity to go to the beach for a little while. Uh, a, a compound sentence is where you take two, sta- two statements. You know, he went to the store, he bought some milk. Those are two thoughts, and you can join them and you say he went to the store and bought some milk. Okay, so that's a compound sentence. A complex sentence starts adding a lot of relative clauses and purpose clauses and all kinds of other stuff to it, which is usually what you find when, when you're studying through, uh, through Scripture. So you take a look at that paragraph, which is 3 through 12, and say, what in the world is Peter talking about here? What's his focus? And this is, this is how I've summarized this. He's saying that living in light of eternity, that's what I'm saying is the major theme of the whole epistle, is that we need to learn to live in light of eternity. He says living in light of eternity means we can rejoice in the midst of the present fiery trial, because our love for God enables us, that's a typo there, obviously, enables us to focus on the glories to come. Now, that's an important statement. Don't let that just fly by you. That is really important. We can have joy in the midst of the present fiery trial. And I know that every one of us are going through difficult times in one way or another, to one degree or another, but some folks I know are going through some extremely difficult and challenging uh, times in their lives. And I know some folks who are listening to this message, and they're going through just some just some hellacious challenges right now. And they need to learn how to have joy in the midst of all the chaos and calamity and everything else that's going on around them. And what enables us to do that is our realization in our spiritual life of the love that God has for us, where that becomes uh, more real to us than the antagonism, the hostility uh, of people or, or the terrible oppressive circumstances that we may be uh, encountering. And we need to learn to focus on the glories to come. Now, that's an important word, the word glory. And if you were reading through this several times, uh, I would encourage you to highlight words like faith and salvation, words like uh, believe, words like joy or rejoicing, uh, words like glory. These words are all used several times, and they tell you that that's what the writer is talking about. So... I've highlighted some of these. Uh, uh, we're going to put a uh, little 
instructional video up on the Dean Bible Ministries website before long on uh, how to use a little uh, application called OneNote. Some people have Microsoft OneNote, and this will give you some ideas of how you can use that in your own personal Bible study to really bring out and focus on what's going on in the text. And so I just sort of copied over some of the things I've been doing there. And you see how I've highlighted in boldface some different words to bring out these terms that are used uh, uh, again and again. And so this is the opening. This is the first sentence. And the first sentence really focuses us on the end game, on our inheritance. You look at the word hope in verse 3. Hope is a future concept. It is an expectation of something that will definitely take place in the future. The word inheritance has to do with our future possession in heaven. It is re- that inheritance is, look at the last line, reserved in heaven for you. And then this, the term salvation in verse 5 also relates to the idea of, of glorification when we are face to face with the, with the Lord. So this first section, uh, emphasizes a number of doctrines that come together and are intertwined in what Peter is saying. Uh, the doctrine of regeneration, where uh, God has begotten us again to a living hope, that confident expectation. Hope for the Christian isn't something that is wishful optimism, like, well, I really hope it doesn't rain the next couple of days because we have a campout planned. We're not sure what's going to happen or what's not going to happen, but that's not how the Bible uses the term hope for the believer. We have a certainty, a conviction, an absolute knowledge of what will happen. Uh, it's connected to the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the mention of a reference to our inheritance, and we're going to see a pers- that, that it, this relates to what I call the personal sense of our eternal destiny. We're focusing on what's reserved for us in heaven, and we're living in light of that, and we have to also understand the phases or stages of salvation that I mentioned earlier. Now, when we look at these verses... It begins with the statement of praise, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we will see, bless, when we see these statements many times in the Old Testament, New Testament, blessed be God, the concept of being blessed is the idea of praise. In the Greek, the word is eulogetos, where we get our English word eulogy, and when do you, what do you do in a eulogy? You praise the person who just died. So that's what this word means. You're praising God the Father for something that he uh, has begotten us again uh, to a living hope. And this is related to inheritance and salvation. And so we have to come through and take a look at these particular things. We have to understand that there are two aspects to this inheritance. There's an aspect that everyone, every believer in Christ has in common. We all have eternal life. We're all going to get a resurrection body. We're all going to have joy. We're all going to have happiness. We're all going to spend eternity with the Lord. But it's going to be a little different in the experience of each and every believer depending on the capacity they develop uh, during this, this life. Uh, so there are going to be distinctions based on rewards and based on uh, based on the roles and responsibilities that God gives us based on the spiritual capacities we develop during our times of testing in this life. There are going to be different levels of fellowship and proximity to the Lord in the millennial kingdom and in eternity. And we're going to have different roles, different responsibilities, and different privileges. Everybody's going to be in heaven, 
And everybody's going to have, for example, a capacity. Some people are going to have a bowl that's this big, and some people are going to have a bowl that's this big, but that bowl is going to be filled with joy and happiness, and so everybody's going to experience it to the degree, to the full, to the degree of their particular capacity. This inheritance is for all who are justified. Romans 8, 29 and 30, Paul says that uh, those who are justified, these he will also glorify. It happens in glorification. We learn that we're kept by the power of God, not by our own power, but we're kept by, by him. Now, in the next uh, set of verses, the next set of statements, in verses 6 through 9, uh, Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice. Now, the this is what he comes up later to say, and that's really laid out in verse 7. In this you, re- you greatly rejoice. That, that indicates what it is that you greatly rejoice in verse 7. The genuineness of your faith may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what these four verses are talking about, is that you can have present-time joy because you understand that even though your faith is tested by fire, it will be found to the praise, honor, and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to talk about some of the motivational aspects in that, which is our love for the Lord, And what we receive at the end game in verse 9 is the salvation of our souls. Now, that's not talking about getting into heaven. That's talking about a lot more than simply getting into heaven. That's experiencing the fullness of everything the Lord wishes to give us when we get to heaven. Now, we're going to go through this in detail when we get there. So we see an emphasis on problem solving, on facing adversity. There are a lot of similarities between uh, these verses, especially verse 6 and 7, a lot of uh, language, a lot of vocabulary similarities between this and James 1, 2 through 4, talking about the fact that we handle adversity by understanding its role and purpose in our life and that it's not something that just just happens and somehow God forgot to uh, watch over us today, but he allows this in his perfect timing and perfect plan to come into our lives so that we will learn to walk in dependence upon him and so that we can be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we come to verses 10 and 11. Verses 10 and 11, we read uh, Peter going on to expand this, and he says, of this salvation, that, and here we use the term not just in terms of justification again, but here he's probably using the term as the whole, uh, the whole package, phase one, phase two, and phase three, probably with the focus a little bit more on the end game of this whole process, we might say of God's whole plan of salvation, uh, is the focus of the prophets. They were, and we learn that these Old Testament prophets were curious. They studied what was revealed to them and what was revealed to others in the hopes of discovering everything that God was going to do in the future to provide this perfect salvation. We're told that they, that they, they prophesied of the grace, there's another use of that word, that would come to you. They knew about this. This, this validates the whole concept of messianic prophecy in the Old Testament, that the prophets in the Old Testament were searching for the manner of time 
that the Spirit of God who was in them, that's working through divine revelation, that, as I pointed out numerous times in the Old Testament, they weren't in, nobody, no believer was indwelt for their spiritual life and spiritual growth. They were indwelt for responsibilities in relation to leadership in Israel, in the history of Israel. Kings were like Saul and David were given the Holy Spirit to guide and direct them in their responsibilities as king. Judges were given the Holy Spirit to fulfill the mission that God gave them as a judge. Prophets were given the Holy Spirit to enable them to prophesy, to write Scripture, and to uh, copy Scripture and to transmit and preserve Scripture. So they're they're searching for what the uh, Spirit of Christ was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And that's important because that shows a twofold aspect. The first advent is the suffering, the cross. The second advent is the glories that would follow. So this emphasizes the first and second comings of Christ. So in terms of the key doctrines, the key things that are being taught in that particular uh, sentence, we have messianic prophecy. We have the first and second advents of the Messiah, the suffering Messiah, and the royal Messiah. There are a lot of doctrines that are touched on in these verses. There is, and to really comprehend what Peter is saying here, we have to relate this to a lot of Scripture. And then we come to the last verse, which appears to give us our transition to the next section. Uh, <clears throat> and it gives also a hint of additional motivation by the believer that he is observed by the angels. He says, to them, that is to these prophets, it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have proclaimed the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels long to look into. Yes, there are watchers, and they are angels, and they are watching us because they can learn a lot about God from watching how God deals with us in our Christian life. We are exhibits before the angels, both the fallen angels and the uh, elect or holy angels. So in the, the last verse, we see the role of prophecy, the role of the Holy Spirit, and angelic observation. So this gives us a good framework for understanding these particular verses. Now let's go back to just the first two verses in this section, verses 3 and 4 in chapter 1. 3, 4, and 5, excuse me, these, these three verses. This is one sentence in the Greek, and so this expresses one thought. And one of the things that I teach Bible students and I teach pastors is when you're doing exegesis, you have a long sentence here, you have to find your main clause. Your main clause is comprised of your grammatical subject and your, and your verb. And that tells you your main clause. It's usually, it's a fine, always a finite verb, but usually 98% of the time a finite verb. God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is a subject. And then you have a relative clause that tells us that he has begotten us again to a living hope. That's what this is all about. God, the Father, has begotten us again to a living hope. And everything else just expands or elucidates on those particular uh, comments. So that's the core, and then everything else just fills in the gaps 
And the best way really to approach this, I think, is to start at the end and work our way backwards. They're working in verse 3. We're going to start in verse 5. And we're going to work backwards. And this is just setting us up for when I come back next time and we spend a little more time in uh, our exegesis. Then we'll go forward in a normal verse-by-verse, word-by-word format. So what we see in the last verse, in the last part of chapter 5, is that this salvation is ready to be revealed in the last time. So it gives us the timing of our full realization of our inheritance. It's going to come when we are uh, at the last time. This is a reference to the judgment seat of Christ for church age believers. This is referenced in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. And that's a familiar verse to many of us, that at the judgment seat of Christ, and it states in verse 13, each person's work will become, eva- will become clear, it will be evaluated. Some of that work is going to be, uh, by analogy, is going to be burned up. Some of it is going to uh, not be burned up. The focus of the judgment seat of Christ is not to expose our failures, but our successes. It's not to expose the wood, hay, and straw, but to expose the gold, silver, and precious stones. Everybody has their whole production of their life, and it is, uh, it's not that it's literally going to be burned. It is, that's just a metaphor used, using the uh, metaphor of the purification or refinement of, of metallic ore as the analogy that what's left after the refining process is what is going to last, what has been purified by the uh, removal of that which was irrelevant. And everyone is going to be saved, and verse 15, but some are not going to have anything left over. So this is important. What do you want to have revealed at the last time? You want to begin with the end in mind. When the end comes and we're the judgment seat of Christ, do you want to be sitting there looking at a pile of ashes in the palm of your hand, or do you want there to be something substantive there for which God is glorified by the work that he has produced uh, in your life. That's the issue. The second thing that we see here is the certainty of our future salvation. At the beginning, we are kept by the power of God through faith. We are kept by the power of God. It's the power of God that keeps us. It's interesting, if you look at the end of verse 4, you have the phrase, reserved in heaven for you. That uses this top Greek word that I have on the screen, tereo, which means to keep or to guard something. And that 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 inheritance is guarded. It is watched over for us in heaven. It's not going to disappear. Uh, and then a parallel or synonymous term is used, uh, fureo, which indicates that that there is a, we are kept, we're guarded by the power of God. He guards us. Now, God is the one who keeps us. Nobody can get past that guard. He preserves us. It's the power of God, not our power, that, that preserves our salvation. We don't have to make sure that we're going to get there by continuing to be obedient, which is, that just works salvation. That's legalism. So the certainty of our salvation is guaranteed by the power uh, of God. This is what we see Jesus talking about in John 10, 28 and 29, where he said, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. That's a dogmatic assertion from the Lord Jesus Christ. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. That, that God has, that the hand is often used in the Old Testament as a metaphor for the omnipotence of God. 
the hand of God. It's the power of God. And what Jesus is saying is nothing can break my power. It's my power that is keeping you. And then he uh, doubles down on it in the next verse and says, My Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So it's a double grip. The Son's hand that's omnipotent can't be broken, and then the Father's hand wrapped around that that, that can't be broken. So our future is secure. Then the third thing that we see, third thing that we see is the nature of our inheritance. The nature of our inheritance. This takes us back to a concept we studied in Romans and several other places. That in Romans 8, 16, and 17, we have the phrase that the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. This is how it's usually punctuated. We're heirs. That's what we're talking about in this whole section is inheritance in, in Peter. Then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Two different kinds of heirships mentioned there. Normally this is punctuated the way it is up on the screen. I highlighted the commas in red, which you may not be able to see. There's if, if children, comma, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, comma. As if those two concepts are synonymous. If indeed we suffer with him. So that if indeed clause is related to both heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, that heirship then is qualified or conditioned upon suffering with him. Now, that's just a bad way of punctuating. There's no punctuation. You don't have commas. You don't have periods. You don't have semicolons, colons, anything like that in the Greek. You supply it. Greek didn't have all those punctuation marks. They did it through grammar. And you could understand what they were talking about on the way they structured sentences. Now, what we have here is what we find sometimes in any language is a certain level of ambiguity. And here's an ambiguous sentence in, in English. No punctuation. Now, if you put this sentence out there as a little pop quiz, you say, punctuate the sentence. Where do you put the commas? Put two commas in there. Where do you put them? Most women will put them in the same place, and most men will put them in the same place. But men and women do not put them in the same place. So the first way that they do that is this way. A, and this is the way a woman will usually punctuate it. A woman, comma, without her, comma, man is nothing. So the main thought is uh, uh, that, that without the woman, man is nothing. Okay? Where you put the commas changes the meaning of the sentence. Here you have the way that most men will do it. A woman without her man is nothing. Okay? That one comma changes the whole meaning of the sentence. You put it one place, it means one thing. You put it someplace else, it means something else. So if we take out the comma at the end of Christ and we overhear and we move it over here right after God, then we have heirs of God, comma, and joint heirs of Christ if we suffer with him. That means two types of heirship. Heirs of God, which is true for every believer, and joint heirship, which is true for only those who suffer with him. Heirs of God are those who get all the same package. We all get eternal life. We all get a certain measure of joy, happiness, 
a resurrection body. We all get certain things in common. But for those who grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and want to be godly as Timothy, as Paul says to Timothy, those who desire to be godly will be persecuted, you will suffer, then those get additional rewards and inheritance. Part of our inheritance, uh, our inheritance starts on uh, phase two on, uh, uh, I mean, uh, on the earth, and it has to do with our relationship with God. This will expand when we're in heaven. Remember, we, as we develop fellowship, as we enjoy fellowship with God, we possess God in a certain way. He becomes our possession. That's how these verses use that, not in the sense that we own God or restrict God, but he becomes closer to us, and that richness of our fellowship develops. We often use the phrase in fellowship, which is like a static thing. It's not a static thing. It's the rich enjoyment of a relationship. That's why I much prefer to use the word enjoying fellowship. When we sin, we're not enjoying anything with God. Then when we confess sin, then we can enjoy the fellowship with God. So we have, these are some great verses to learn. Lamentations 3.24. Jeremiah says, the Lord is my portion. He's my share, like a share in an inheritance. The Lord is my portion, therefore I hope in him. Notice how he connects hope with inheritance, just like Peter does. Then we have Psalm 16.5 and 6. O oh Lord, you are the what? The share of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen on me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. And then in Psalm seventy-three twenty-five, whom have I in heaven but you, Lord? Who am I in heaven but you? And there is none upon the earth that I desire but you. The Lord is a big, our relationship with him and that intimacy with him is a major part of our inheritance that begins today in this life and is going to expand when we're in heaven based upon the capacity that we develop in this life. To know him means to explore and learn everything we can about him and to live on the basis of his fullness. And the only way to do that is to know the word because God only reveals himself specifically to us in terms of his of his word. Another thing we learn about inheritance is it begins in this life. Uh, Ephesians 1 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly in Christ. It's already ours, but he's not going to let us have it until we develop capacity to enjoy it and to use it. So we need to learn all that God did for us in salvation. We need to learn all about redemption, propitiation, reconciliation. Uh, we need to learn all about imputation and justification, all of these different ter- terms so that we can truly come to understand what happened in salvation. Because when we first trusted Christ, we, we just knew about a molecule of, of doctrine, just enough to know how to be saved. But then after it, we go back and we study. We learn about God. We learn about the fall of man. We learn about the grace of God. We learn about uh, substitutionary sacrifices. We learn about expiation. We learn about 
uh, atonement. We learn about cleansing. We Then we learn about all the spiritual skills. We learn about confession of sin and walking by the Spirit and the faith rest drill and grace orientation, doctrinal orientation. We learn how to focus on the future in terms of the personal sense of our eternal destiny. We learn about our personal uh, love for God and impersonal love for all mankind. And, and we learn about occupation with Christ and the joy of Christ that is shared with us. All of those are spiritual skills we have to maximize, and that takes a, a lot of time. We learn from reading the Scripture how God deals with people over time, and we have example after example after example that we can then take and apply to circumstances uh, in our own life. That's what we get from studying much of the Old Testament. We learn analogies like with the Old Testament, like just as Israel entered into the land, they still had to conquer all of it, and it didn't happen just in one day or one week or one year. They had mopping up operations that went on for year after year after year, and this is analogous to what is described in 2 Corinthians 10.5 that we are to take every thought captive to obedience to Christ. That's every single area of intellectual activity between your ears. Literature, art, music, you didn't think about that. Literature, art, music, engineering, mathematics, science, meteorology, biology, geology, all of these things are, are, are entire disciplines that people spend the entire life learning, yet you need to bring every area of thought in each one of those disciplines under the authority of the Word of God. And we can't do that in 10 lifetimes if we're giving it maximum effort. Most people don't even, don't even come close to giving it maximum consideration for, for two minutes. And then we learn the qualities of this inheritance, that it's incorruptible and undefiled. The first word indicates that it's imperishable, immortal, incorruptible, cannot spoil, can't be ruined, can't be corrupted. And the second word means it can't be stained, it can't be defiled. You you can't express or define the inheritance positively because our vocabulary fails. So Peter has to define it through negatives. It can't be defiled, it can't be destroyed, and it won't fade away. It is permanent, and it is there forever. And then we get to back to the beginning of this statement in verse 3. Uh, we're told that God has begotten us again. He's caused us to be born again to what? A living hope. That living hope is connected to the inheritance that is developed in verses 4 and 5. It is not a dead hope. It is like, like in human viewpoint, it is a living hope. Which And that concept of living is related to the resurrection of Christ. Once again, the resurrection of Christ is connected to life after justification. And so the resurrection from Christ gives us a, a focus on the spiritual life that comes as a result of our regeneration. And once we dwell on all of that, it causes us to do what? To praise God for what he has done. That's where Peter starts. Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll start there next Tuesday night. Father, thank you, or Thursday night, thank you for this time that we have to get together, study these things, to be challenged about uh, your plan for our lives, that it's a plan with purpose that has ramifications down through eternity. 
It is preparation for our future role and responsibility in the eternal kingdom. It's not just taking care of business today, but it is doing that in light of your plan and purpose for us in the kingdom and on into eternity. The decisions we make today not only impact today and tomorrow, but they will, uh, in many cases, reverberate down through the the, uh, millennia and into eternity. Father, challenge us with what we studied that we might recognize that we are to live today in light of eternity. We're to begin with the end in mind, and the end game is realizing that full salvation that is reserved in heaven for us to to the maximum that we can enjoy uh, you and enjoy every experience, everything that will be ours in heaven because we've developed that capacity here and now in our life on the earth. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.